may be seated. We continue our sermon series today, Suffering and God's Sovereignty. We've been looking at Joseph's story, and when you look at Joseph's account, you certainly see his suffering. So we finished the story today, but we're going to have one more week where we're going to be looking at God's sovereignty and us. If you remember, our account began with Joseph, who is Jacob's 11th son. If you remember that first week, I talked about the baby wars that went on with, with uh, Jacob's wives. So Joseph is son number 11, but he's the first son of Jacob's favorite wife, Rachel. And we were told multiple times that Joseph was hated by his brothers, hated so much that they sold him to slave traders and they faked his death. Joseph then spent 13 years as a slave and as a prisoner in Egypt, and he became a prisoner because he was falsely accused by his master's wife. After more than two years in prison, Joseph is miraculously made number two in Egypt when God gives Joseph the interpretation of Pharaoh's dreams. God used the dreams that he gave to Pharaoh to tell Pharaoh of seven years of great bounty followed by seven years of severe drought. Drought means no rain. No rain means no crops. No crops means no food. And you call that famine. Pharaoh puts Joseph in charge of the food program, collecting 20% of the grain in the good years, each of those good years, and selling the grain during the bad years to the people that need it. And if you think about what happens here in this, in using Joseph this way, God uses Joseph to preserve the lives of a nation of people, and even more than just that one nation, more than just Egypt. What we're going to look at today happens a little over 20 years after Joseph is sold as a slave. He had the 13 years as a slave and a prisoner. There are seven good years. Those are now gone. And the famine has begun. So if you would, read with me from the screen, Genesis 42, verses 1 to 6. Let's read. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you look at one another? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Okay, so you see in verse 6 what we just read, that Joseph's dream came true. The dream that he had when he was 17, that his brothers would bow down to him. And here it is, it's happened. Now, as we look at what comes next after these verses, 
Some people say that Joseph was toying with his brothers, like a cat might play with a mouse that it's caught, and it's just having fun at the mouse's expense. Some people think that Joseph took revenge, even though it was a very mild form of revenge, that he was getting a, he was getting a little back from his brothers in terms of what he did. I don't think so. You see, Joseph's 10 older brothers are totally within his power in Egypt. If he had wanted them dead, I think they would have been dead. If he wanted them slaves, they would have become slaves if he had wanted that. And I don't think that anybody else in Egypt would have cared. They didn't know who these 10 guys are. Instead, I believe that Joseph tested his brothers and he tested them very carefully. And I believe that's his intent from verse 6 when he sees his brothers bowing down in front of him and he recognizes them. He wants to test them. You see, Joseph knows how long the famine is going to go. He knows that his brothers are going to have to come back to Egypt if they want more grain. Now, in the verses we just read, you notice that Jacob did not send Benjamin. Benjamin is son number 12. And we also saw he's Joseph's brother. So Joseph is Rachel's first son. Benjamin is Rachel's second son, and she dies giving him birth. So from Jacob's point of view, Benjamin is all that Jacob has left of Rachel. So he thinks. And so you look at verse 4, and you can still see, it, it, I'm wondering if that wasn't given the way it was given because it's a hint that Jacob's Favoritism is still in place. It's still going on. And he, he doesn't want to take a chance with Benjamin. So, Joseph's brothers come to Egypt to buy grain. And if you read the account, you'll see that jo uh, Joseph questions his brothers, and I think he does so through an interpreter. And he finds out that Jacob is still alive and that Benjamin is at home. And what is very clear is the brothers do not recognize Joseph. Joseph does something, and I'm going to mention this a few times. He unsettles his brothers. In this initial meeting, Joseph unsettles his brothers when he accuses them of being spies. You guys are spies. You're here to check out the situation. You're going to try to take advantage of Egypt somehow. And, of course, they deny it because they're not. But it's at this point the brothers say something that I quoted in the first week from Genesis 42, verse 21. Then they, the brothers, said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother. And they're referring to Joseph. Remember, they're saying this in front of Joseph, who understands them. And that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And they're talking about when they stole his coat, threw him in the pit, and sold him to slave traders. That's why I said he wasn't quiet and stoic. He's begging for his life, and they ignored him. Now, apparently, the brothers believed that bad things happened to bad people. And they're saying to each other, what we did to our brother was wrong. Well, Joseph holds one of the ten brothers in Egypt, and he lets the other nine go home. And he holds this brother in Egypt because that's going to ensure that the other brothers come back. Joseph also tells them, look, when you come back, if you come back, you bring Benjamin or don't even bother taking the trip. 
You have to have your brother Benjamin if you're going to see my face, and you have to see my face again if you are going to get any grain. All of this, I believe, is part of the preparation for the test. Then, before the brothers leave on this first trip, Joseph secretly returns the money they had brought to buy the grain, puts it back in their, in their grain bags, and the brothers are surprised and again unsettled when they find the money in their bags as they return home. Well, when they get home and, jo and Jacob hears about all that happened in Egypt, he is very upset. In fact, if you read it and put it in our terms, he's like, what were you guys thinking? Why did you say all these things about me and about your brother? They're just going like, he kept asking us questions. He's really upset. Jacob does not want Benjamin to go to Egypt. But they go through the grain that they'd bought, and they then begin to talk, and they begin to argue. And after a lot of discussion and hand-wringing by Jacob, Jacob agrees to send the nine brothers and Benjamin to Egypt. And I believe one of the things that helped persuade him was his son Judah, Jacob's son Judah, looks at Jacob and says, Dad, look, here's, here's what I will do. I will guarantee Benjamin's life with mine. I will guarantee his safety. And so Jacob says yes. So the brothers return to Egypt with Benjamin to buy more grain, and Jacob invites them to a meal. And jo I'm sorry, not Jacob, Joseph. There's lots of J names in here. So Joseph unsettles his brothers again because as they sit down at the table, which they're not sitting with him, they're at a separate table, but they, you know, I, I can imagine this. They have little name cards on the table. You, you know what that's like to go to a meal with the name cards? And they are seated in birth order. Who in Egypt knows their birth order? They didn't tell anybody. So there's Reuben the oldest all the way down to Benjamin the youngest. Their other brother has been brought back from being held. They're all there. And as they sit down and they're served their food, everybody gets the same portion except Benjamin. His is larger. Because in that day, that was a, a sign that the one who gets the larger portion is the favored one. How does anybody in Egypt know that Benjamin is the favorite son back home? Of course they're going to be unsettled. Well, now comes the final preparation for the test. Because Joseph gives the brothers their second batch of grain. And then he has the servants, again, put the brothers' money back in their grain bags. Second time he's done this, but he does something else this time. He says, take my own personal drinking cup and put it in the bag of the youngest, Benjamin. And they did this in a way that the brothers had no idea what was happening. So the brothers leave the city. And again, don't just read this and pass through. Think about it. If you were one of those brothers, you're thinking, you know what? This has been the craziest set of trips we've ever had. I mean, we've been accused of being spies. They sat us down in birth order. How did they know all that? We are glad to be gone. And notice this time, there weren't any conditions given by Joseph. They're thinking, we're free. We get home, we're good. We'll figure out another way to get the grain after this. 
I'm not wouldn't be surprised if they were thinking that. Well, so the brothers leave the city, and Joseph instructs his chief steward, go get them, and accuse them of stealing my cup. And so he goes after them. They're not that far out of the city when he, capt- when he confronts them. The brothers don't know anything about the cup. They claim their innocence. We would, not, we would never do anything like that. Never, ever, ever. And then I think very foolishly, they say, and we're so sure that if one of us has the cup, that one will die and we'll all be your slaves. And again, to kind of put it in modern terms, the chief steward says, well, okay, that's the way you want it. So he starts checking the grain bags, starting with the oldest, Reuben. Should have been a clue. He's going down son by son, brother by brother, down towards the, old, the youngest. And I would imagine, again, with each bag where there's no cup, they're like, oh, man, okay, it's getting better and better. You know, not too long, we're going to be on our way again. But he finds Joseph's cup in Benjamin's bag. To say that the brothers are dismayed is to not say enough. They tear their clothes, which back then was a, a sign, you know, clothes were expensive. They would tear them as a public sign of great grief and pain and misery inside. They tear their clothes and they return to Egypt. And I would imagine as they're walking, their feet are so heavy and their heads are down. And they must have been thinking, what in the world is going on? Well, now comes the test. This is what everything else in these first two trips has been building up to. Joseph tells his brothers that contrary to their suggestion, he's not going to kill the guilty one and keep the rest. He's only going to keep the one who's guilty as his servant, and the rest of them can go free. Joseph is giving the ten older brothers an opportunity to get rid of Benjamin. Do you catch that? And this opportunity is like the first time. The first time, 20 years before, the brothers are over 50 miles away from home. There's nobody around, and Joseph shows up. And so they're able to steal his coat and throw him in the pit and sell him to the slave traders, and nobody else knows about it. Now they're in Egypt. They're even farther away from home. And it's the Egyptians that are accusing Benjamin, not them. All the brothers have to do is nod their head. Say, okay, Mr. Governor, all right, that's how we'll do this thing. But they didn't. Instead of taking that easy way out, instead of leaving Benjamin in Egypt, Judah who was the brother that had suggested that Joseph be sold as a slave. Judah gets in front of Joseph and begs to take Benjamin's place. He says, sir, we already lost. My dad already lost one son, and it nearly killed him. If Benjamin doesn't come back, he will die. There is no question. He will die. I will take his place. Do whatever you want with me, but I will take his place. That's the test. And the brothers pass. They've changed. 
They're not the same brothers as they were 20 years ago when they were first going to kill Joseph and then said, oh, maybe this is a better idea, Judah. Good idea, Judah. Let's let him have a living death. Let him be a slave and every day remember this dream he had that's never going to come true. They changed. Well, it's at this point that Joseph reveals his identity to his brothers. You read this in Genesis 45, starting in verse 4. Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Why, in verse 5, does Joseph say, do not be distressed? That's a real simple answer. Because they were distressed. They're the ones that had sold Joseph as a slave, and now Joseph has them in his power, and it is total power, and they know it. So yes, they're going to be distressed. But you can tell right here, Joseph has forgiven them. And I don't think it was a last-minute thing. Oh, well, I guess I should. No, he already had. Joseph sees God's plan. He's telling them he sees God's plan to use Joseph to do good. So the brothers return home with the grain that they had gone for, but they also have wagons and gifts from Joseph. But again, think about it. I don't believe that in one sense they were looking forward to going home and telling Jacob that Joseph was alive. Now, that Joseph was alive was good news. That Joseph was number two in all of Egypt was amazing. But to share the good news that Joseph is alive, they also have to admit to Jacob what they had done all those years before, that they had sold Joseph as a slave, they had lied to Jacob, and they had let him believe for over 20 years that his son was dead. So I would imagine, after they share with their dad, there's a very heavy silence in the tent, okay, after they admit their sin. And we are told that Jacob didn't believe them at first, that Joseph was alive. Now again, after you've just been told by 10 of your sons that they had sold your, your favorite son as a slave and, and lied to you for 20 years, you're going to be probably a little reluctant to believe them. So why would they tell you this thing that Joseph is alive? So we're told that Jacob doesn't really believe them until he sees the wagons and the gifts. And we're not told, but again, I have to wonder, at this point, does Jacob see his part? Does he see his favoritism and how it actually could have added to the situation and led, helped lead to losing Joseph all those years? Well, Jacob and his family pack up and they head to Egypt. Joseph meets them on the way. He meets his father. That was a wonderful reunion. And then he directs the family to the area of Egypt called Goshen. And even though there are five more years for the famine, Joseph's entire family is provided for by Joseph. 
So after 22 years, the family is reunited. And we're not told how many years, but for some number of years, Jacob is with them before he dies. There's one more time the ten older brothers are unsettled. And that's just after their dad's death. And you read this in Genesis 50, starting at verse 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that he, we did to him. And I think the idea is this. So maybe it was Jacob that actually held Joseph back from getting, you know, for us getting what, what we really deserve. So verse 16, they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father gave us this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Then he repeats himself. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of, your, of God your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now I really, really doubt that Jacob actually told the brothers to tell Joseph this message. I think they're trying to manipulate. I mean, think about it. They come with this message, Joseph, this is from your father. This, these are your father's dying words, Joseph. You got to honor this. And you see Joseph's response. I believe he was crying because he was grieved. Because he sees that his brothers, even though they've changed some, they're still, still trying to manipulate. Well, in many sermons and in many Sunday school lessons, you would hear either directly or it would be implied that Joseph is the hero of the story. I mean, look at what he endured. He is sold as a slave by his brothers, even though he begs them not to. He rises as a slave in his master's house, and then he's betrayed by his master's wife, and she lies straight out. He's put in prison because of this, we don't know how long he's in prison, but we know that here's this opportunity with the cupbearer for him to go free, and the cupbearer betrays him, and he's left there and ignored for at least two years. And then look at his kindness. The first part of the kindness is what he didn't do. <laughs> he didn't kill his brothers or put them in, in and make them slaves, put them in prison when he could have. No, instead he forgives his brothers and he provides for his family. So if you and I hear a message like this, and we're going to take it on, if we're going to copy Joseph, these are some pretty big shoes to fill. In fact, it's too big of a burden for us to carry. Because try as hard as we might, if we even are going to try at all, we're not going to be able to copy Joseph, not well. You see, you and I don't have it within us to endure that kind of suffering to endure that much suffering. You and I don't have it within us to, to forgive, and neither did Joseph, not on his own. No, Joseph isn't the hero, God is the hero. Even though God keeps a very low profile, 
I mean, the one place I know he keeps a lower profile is in the book of Esther. His name's not even mentioned. Here he's mentioned a little bit. But what we see is we see God working his plan. God is the one that moved Joseph to Egypt. He just was using Joseph's brothers and their hatred to do it. God was preparing Joseph. He was, again, we kind of read, we don't not told a lot, but pretty clear he's immature at 17. He has growing up to do. And God grows him and prepares him using the slavery, being a slave for Potiphar, being betrayed by Potiphar's wife, being tempted by Potiphar's wife, being put in prison, the cupbearer, and all of those things. We saw today God was working in Joseph's brothers. They were not the same brothers in Egypt as they were 20 years before. God was working in Jacob. God used all of this to move Jacob's family to Egypt, where they would become a nation. They were 70 people total. They ended up becoming a nation of a million to two million people. They also later became slaves. And this God told Abraham, Joseph's great-grandfather, before it all happened, this is what is going to happen. And it happened just as he said. God is the one that gave Joseph the skill and the life experience to be the governor of the land. And to me, I think the really big one, God is the one that enabled Joseph to forgive his brothers. God was working his plan. Well, as we prepare for communion and we take the Lord's Supper, we see that Jesus, in Jesus, God provided for his plan for you and me. Just as God used the evil of Joseph's brothers and others to accomplish his plan with Joseph, in Jesus' day, God used the evil of the religious leaders, the, the people themselves that were fickle, the Jews. God used Herod and the Romans to accomplish the greatest good ever achieved. And so Jesus is the ultimate hero. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the good news of the gospel and said it contains both ugly truth and beautiful truth. I think it was Lightsey Wallace that has, was famous for saying at one point, if you want somebody to remember something, you've got to say it seven times. Well, I'm, this is like number three or four. Okay, so we're not quite done yet. You and I carry the ugly truth. That's what we bring into the situation. God is the one who provides the beautiful truth. And this meal is a reminder of both. The ugly truth is our selfishness and our self-focus and our rebellion against God because God made us. Not only did he made us, but he made us to have a loving relationship with him. And we're born saying, life is all about me. And you better help me or I'm going to make you pay. However, I can make you pay. So all of us are guilty of rebelling against God and we all deserve to be punished. The beautiful truth that we see in the meal is the pointers that Jesus gives to his sacrifice. The fact that he's going to be our substitute. It points to his life and death and resurrection. And he does all of this to rescue us from ourselves and all our ugliness. He does it to be able to provide justly to provide forgiveness and to pay our debt. You see, you and I are made right with God by Jesus being punished by God. Jesus does something that, that is not allowed in our courts. He takes our place. He takes our place and he suffers the punishment and justice is satisfied. 
we're given life by Jesus dying in our place, dying and rising again. So as we come to this meal, as we remember what Jesus did, and don't forget that the meal that, that we celebrate as the Lord's Supper with the two parts, the, the bread and the wine, the bread and the juice, was a meal of remembrance already. Because we just said, God worked all of these things with Joseph and, and the family and everything else to get the family to Egypt, and they grew into a nation and they became slaves. Well, God freed them. And what he told them to do is, here's a meal I want you to have every year to remember that you were freed from slavery in Egypt. And what Jesus shows is actually, it was a pointer to something even better, and that's being freed from the slavery to sin. And so Jesus took that, the bread and the wine, and he said it points to his rescue of us. So if you're here today, and you have received Jesus' rescue, if you've shared publicly, yes, I bring the ugly, Jesus brings the beautiful, and I need to be rescued from me. If you've made that profession of your trust in Jesus, and if you've been baptized, you're welcome to the table. If you're here today and you've made that, that profession, you're a Christian, but you've put other things before God. You've said to, that something else, a person, a job, a thing, whatever it is, that's more important to you right now than God. This is presented as an opportunity for you to let it go. Because if you decide you're going to hang on to it, you and it are going are to get twisted all up. And it's not going to satisfy let it go. Don't review, refuse the meal because you won't give up your desires. But if you're here today and God's a stranger to you, then don't take the, the, the bread and the juice. But think about not just God's amazing power to be able to organize everything in Joseph's story, but the amazing offer that God gives through Jesus, that you and I can be forgiven, we can have a relationship with God. Actually, we already have one, all of us. We all start off as enemies, because we all start off as rebels. But God says, I'm offering to change that. That you go from rebel and enemy to friend. And not just friend, but to be adopted and given an inheritance. God does that for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for loving us this way. We thank you for this story, this true account of Joseph and how it points to you and then the greatest story of all of our rescue through Jesus, your love for us through him, your work uh, for us. Lord, we thank you. Help us to see your goodness. Help us to trust you today. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we're going to do now, we're going to sing, and as we sing... Uh, Larry, would you uh, release the people by rows? And as you're released, if you go down the side aisles, and if you're going to participate in communion, stop by, pick up one of the elements, and then back up the center aisle, um, and then take your seat, and we'll take the elements together. Dennis, if you would, just make sure that we have enough for everybody. Bruce, let's go ahead and sing.
That's a great way to end that song. You'll notice if you haven't taken these before, there's two little tabs. First one is clear. Go ahead and pull that one back and that gets you to the little wafer. That night in that meal where Jesus took just a couple of the pieces of the Passover meal and gave it new meaning. He gave the bread new meaning because he gave it to his disciples and he, as he broke it, he said that his body was going to be broken for us. And what we realize is that he was going to be broken so that we, who are already broken, could be made whole. Eat the bread. Let's pray together the prayer that Jesus taught his disciples. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. When he talks about bread, we normally think of physical food, but also think of spiritual bread, spiritual food, this reminder that we need every day of the ugliness still in us, the beautiful sacrifice that Jesus has made, and that the hope that we have, the certainty that we have because of what he's done. You'll very carefully pull back that purple tab, and you'll see the juice there. At the meal, that Passover meal, Jesus took one of the cups of the Passover and he gave it to his disciples, saying, this cup is the new covenant. He, mean, he meant, this cup is the new covenant relationship in my blood, which is shed for many for the payment of sins. Our relationship with God goes from enemy to friend and child because of what Jesus has done, because he's our substitute. And he says, this is the reminder, we have that new substitute, we have that new relationship, and it isn't based on what we do. We don't have to perform to a certain level. We're loved because of what he has done. Drink all of it. Let's pray again. Lord, we thank you that our hope for this life, our hope for eternity is not in us and our performance. It's not anything related to us. It is you. It is what you have done. And Lord, we need that reminder every single day because we fail, because we're afraid, because we go off charging, uh, trying to do our own thing. Our hope is not in our abilities. Our hope is in you. So we thank you and praise you that you love us this way, that you remind us, you give us these reminders, you give us your word, you give us your spirit. We thank you, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction.